Today on the All You Need to Know About Human Physiology podcast, we will be covering the major concepts of communication, homeostasis, feedback mechanisms, organs of the endocrine system, types of hormones, endocrine reflex pathways, neurohormones, feedback control of neurohormones, neurohormone control, endocrine pathologies, the nervous system, cells of the nervous system, membrane potential, and graded potentials. Now, that was quite a handful, but do not worry. We will be breaking down these concepts into smaller chunks, having active recall questioning, and time for reflection on these concepts. To start off, what is communication between cells? Cell-to-cell communication consists of autocrine, paracrine, endocrine, and neuronal signaling. To help remember the difference between autocrine, paracrine, and endocrine or neuronal signaling, you can think of yourself, your neighborhood, and your city. When you are making yourself a cake, you are able to eat it right after it's done baking because it's for you. This is what autocrine exemplifies. Say you made a cake for your neighbor. You would walk a short distance from your house to drop it off. This is paracrine signaling. Now, say your best friend lives seven miles away. You need to drive on the highway in order to deliver her that piece of cake. You can think of the roads as your bloodstream, as endocrine signaling involves hormones traveling far distances in the blood. Involved in endocrine signaling is neurohormones, as exemplified on slide 15 of lecture 1. In this case, the cake is not being made at your, your own house, but instead at a bakery and being delivered to your friend's house, exemplifying that the, neuron, uh, that the neuron is releasing a hormone to travel through the blood. In addition to the cell paths, we must also focus on signal transduction. As shown on slide 20 of lecture 1, the four categories of membrane receptors include the receptor channel, G-protein-coupled receptor, a receptor enzyme, and the integrin receptor. Moving on, our next topic involves homeostasis, how our body can keep a balance. Without homeostasis, we would not be able to function. When it is a hot day and we are trying to cool down, our body has a mechanism to control our temperature. We sweat. Sweating is not caused by being hot, but rather it is our body's way of cooling us down to combat the heat. The key points to remember for homeostasis are explained through Cannon's postulates on slide 23 of lecture 1. In order to remember these postulates, you can think can't function without homeostasis. C is for chemical signals that have different effects on different tissues. A is for antagonistic controls. N is for nervous regulation of our internal environment. And T is for tonic level of activity. Now let's talk about feedback. Not the type of feedback you get from your professors or peers, but rather the type of feedback our body uses in control pathways. Control varies greatly. Local changes affect local responses, but reflex responses are generated by cells at a distant site, as shown in slide 33 of lecture 1. Along with feedback, we need to bring up homeostasis again. Our body has a homeostatic range that it functions well in. The set point shows the point where our body is at at homeostatic levels, and if the levels increase to a point out of the range, negative feedback is initiated in order to turn off the response, as Meyer relays on slide 35. Here's a question for all of you. What would positive feedback do? Did you have enough time to think of an answer? Right. If you said that positive feedback drives increased stimulation or response, you would be correct. 
Okay, so now that we have a good basis of homeostasis, let us look to the endocrine system and hormone interactions. Coming back to our previous topic, cell-to-cell -to -cell communication would be nothing without hormones and the endocrine system. Through the endocrine system, glands make hormones, hormones are transported through the blood, interact with target receptors, and finally provide some sort of response as shown through lecture two, slide seven. During the interaction with receptors, we can classify hormones in several ways. Hormones made inside the body are endogenous, while hormones that are artificially added to the body are exogenous. Additionally, anything that blocks receptor activity is called an antagonist, while the hormone or ligand itself is called an, an agonist. For hydrophilic hormones, receptors or targets are found on the plasma membrane, but hydrophobic receptors are found intracellularly as they can easily diffuse across the membrane. An example of this includes steroid hormones like cortisol. Some steroid hormones result in slow responses as the binding of the steroid hormone to the receptor activates different transcription and translation initiators in the nucleus as shown by Meyer through slides 15 to 16 of lecture 2. Question time. What is the parent compound for all steroid hormones? Yes, exactly. Cholesterol is the parent. Good work. Remember negative feedback? Good, because we definitely do not want to forget it now. Negative feedback is paramount to our endocrine pathways. Outlined in slide 18 of lecture 2, we see how when we eat a meal, a receptor is activated and we have an increase of glucose in our bodies. The pancreas then knows insulin, a hormone, needs to be secreted in order to act on the tissues. The blood glucose decreases, which provides a negative feedback mechanism on the initial stimulus of the increase of glucose levels. Without this type of feedback or control, we would never be able to have homeostatic levels. Next, let's discuss neurohormones, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. Firstly, as Dr. Meyer explains, the infundibulum connects the hypothalamus to the pituitary gland. The flow of information goes from the hypothalamus to the anterior pituitary through the posterior pituitary. The posterior pituitary consists of several neurons and axons, and the anterior pituitary is not made up of neurons. Knowing that, what can we say the anterior pituitary is made out of? Exactly, we can say the anterior pituitary is made up of secretory cells. One more question. What is an example of a neurohormone? Amazing. An example that sticks out to me is oxytocin, especially because oxytocin release is involved within childbirth, leading to uterine contractions. Next, let's focus on the three levels of integration. First, the central nervous system will activate the hypothalamus, trophic neurohormones will result due to the pituitary, and finally, stimulation of the targets occurs, as Meyer explains. Remember that the hypothalamic hormones cause a release within the anterior pituitary. The anterior pituitary stimulates endocrine or non-endocrine targets, which leads to physiological responses. For example, Silverthorne relays that TSH, ACTH, and GH are all metabolic hormones released from the anterior pituitary. This means that their effects affect the metabolic pathway in certain ways. 
as shown on side 26, as shown on side 26, ACTH leads to cortisol release, which helps stabilize metabolism. TSH leads to the release of thyroid hormones, which help regulate heart rate, digestion, and more. GH leads to the release of insulin-like growth factors like IGFs and somatomedins, and it also has a direct effect on metabolism by promoting the growth of bones or development. Question time. What is synergism? Meyer states that synergism is when multiple effects of stimuli are added together, yielding an exponentially larger response. Let's put this into simpler terms. Take drugs. If you take a Tylenol and an aspirin separately, they have a degree of pain relief each. However, when you take both or multiple types of drugs together, the effect it has on your body is more than simply additive. It is very bad to take multiple drugs together due to the immense effects it has on your body. With all the hormones in our body, we are bound to have different pathologies of the endocrine system. What are they caused by? Well, if we have too much or too little of a hormone, that can cause problems. When we constantly add an artificial or exogenous stimulus to the body, the body will stop making the hormone itself over time, leading to underproduction and a loss of function in making this hormone, in addition to atrophy of the gland, as Meyer relays. Additionally, as slide 53 of lecture 2 explains, when we have secondary hypersecretion due to a hypothalamic problem, this leads to negative feedback failing and thus an excess of physiological responses, and all hormone levels, CRH, ACTH, and cortisol, are high. When there's hypersecretion due to a pituitary problem, this results in negative feedback of CRH, but ACTH and cortisol levels are high. With primary hypersecretion due to an adrenal cortex problem, CRH and ACTH levels are kept low as negative feedback occurs. However, cortisol rem levels remain high, leading to excess symptoms. This affects metabolism as it increases metabolism and decreases immune system responses due to the atrophy of tissues. Question time. If you have problems with more upstream targets, how do hormone levels compare? Correct. If you have problems with more upstream targets, high levels of downstream, ho downstream hormones will be apparent. This is shown through secondary hypersecretion of the hypothalamus on slide 53. Okay, now that we have talked about the endocrine system, why don't we start talking about the nervous system? As Meyer explains, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems are part of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system deals with involuntary or uncontrollable responses. This can include heart rate, heart pressure, breathing, and more. In this system, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems come into play. The sympathetic nervous system handles our fight-or-flight response, while our parasympathetic system handles our rest and digest response. Question time. Additionally, glial cells are found in both the peripheral and central nervous systems. Both the oligodendrocytes and Schwann cells form myelin sheets as relayed on slide 69 of lecture 2. What is the purpose of forming these sheets? What can happen if they are not formed? How do other types of glial cells affect neurons?
Now, I know that was a loaded question, but let's break it down. Myelin sheets allow for insulation of the cell, allowing for increased speed of an action potential. If there are problems with myelin sheets, signal transmission can slow, and we can see this effect in several neurological type diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. To finish off our discussion, let us do an overview of electrochemical gradients, membrane potential, and graded potentials. When both of the chemical and electrical gradients are moving in the same direction, this is energetically favorable. Take sodium. Sodium has a positive charge, meaning that it will be attracted to the negatively charged proteins inside the cell. Additionally, there is a higher concentration of sodium outside of the cell compared to inside. This means that sodium will move from high concentration to low concentration, allowing sodium to move into the cell. Both forces are acting in the same direction, so sodium will move inside. The cell will move towards the equilibrium potential of sodium because of this, as explained through the image on slide 78. But what do we do when the forces act in opposite directions? Which direction will the ions move? This is where the Nernst equation comes to play. This equation allows us to find the equilibrium potential for an ion in order to equate chemical and electrical forces. Additionally, the GHK equation allows us to figure out how the membrane potential changes when ion permeability changes. Generally, when the membrane becomes more permeable to a specific ion, the membrane potential will move towards the equilibrium potential for that ion, as Meyer relates. For example, when sodium permeability increases, the membrane potential will depolarize, becoming more positive and moving towards sodium's equilibrium potential. Potassium has the opposite effect. Because of this, the membrane hyperpolarizes or becomes more negative. The last topic is on graded potentials. As explained through the image on slide 109, if there is a stimulus, receptors open, allowing sodium ion channels to open. The channel opening allows for there to be an increase in permeability to sodium ions, creating a big change in membrane potential, as the membrane potential will move towards the equilibrium potential for sodium. Within this disruption, a lot of sodium ions will be concentrated at the origin. Like charges repel, so sodium will begin to move away from the starting point. However, as we move from unit 1 to unit 5, the disruption gets smaller with distance. The amplitude spreads out, equalizing the charge throughout the cell, showing that the strength decreases due to time and distance as Meyer relays. That's all for today. Hopefully you learned a little bit more about homeostasis, the endocrine system, its pathologies, and the nervous system. See you next week for a further discussion about the nervous system. All of the information today was brought to you by lectures titled Bio3200 MLO1-114 and Bio3200 MLO2-121 by Dr. Karen Meyer and the textbook Human Physiology and Integrated Approach written by D. Unglub Silverthorne.